today we're about two and a half months into our sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent. And, um, you know, as many of you know, I work at a seminary. I'm taking seminary classes. And, you know, two and a half months is about the time of a semester. So what I decided to do is to give you guys a pop quiz <laughs> on the Psalms this morning. All right? So who's excited to take a, a pop quiz this morning? All right. But it's, it's actually an easy pop quiz. It's open book. You can use the Internet. You can use anything you want. All right. What is that? So I don't even have a book. <laughs> the Bible. The book is the Bible. There you go, on your phone. <laughs> um, you know, because I figure if we're going to spend a couple months in the Psalms, you know, we should test you about it. See, we'll see what people are walking away with, right? Um, so here we go. Here's a little pop quiz on the Psalms, Psalms of Ascent. First question, it's a layup. <laughs> Are the Psalms in the New Testament or Old Testament? Old, Old Testament. All right. Anybody have a, a differing opinion on that? All right. Good, good. Okay. So you're going to ace this. You're going to ace this. Easy. Easy stuff. All right. Second question. Who wrote the Psalms? A bunch of people. Any other answers? David, Solomon. Okay. A bunch of people. Well, it's actually a trick question. You know, see, the, the Psalms are like the rest of the Bible. It's the infallible Word of God written, authored by many people. So, you know, uh, you're half right. I would have given you partial credit, Jonathan. You would have got partial credit for that, 50%. Right? Or if somebody said they were written by God, I would have given partial credit for that too. So uh, it's really a mixture of those two answers. All right, uh, next question, next question. What genre are the Psalms? What genre of writing? Poetry. Poetry. Any other answers? No? Any other answers besides poetry? Hip-hop. Hip-hop? <laughs> All right. All right. Anything else? The Psalms are songs. So... You know, I would, poetry, I would have given you partial credit for poetry. Hip-hop, I would have given you probably about 25%. You know, it, it, is, it is songs, you know, tech, technically, so um, partial credit. All right. Final question. Final question on this quiz this morning. How many psalms are in the Psalms of Ascent? We're going through the sermon series, Psalms of Ascent. How many psalms are in the Psalms of Ascent? Any other answer? We've got 25. 26. 26. Any other answers? All right, 15. There are 15 Psalms in the Psalms of Ascent. <laughs> I said it was open book, too. Come on. Google that. You would have had it. Um, and today we're in the 10th Psalm. We're in the 10th Psalm in the Psalms of Ascent. And as, you, as many of you might remember, when we kind of set the stage and the context for the Psalms of Ascent, uh, these Psalms were sung by Jews as they were going into Jerusalem and or, uh, like for pilgrimages, they would have pilgrimage festivals. So they were sung as they were going in for pilgrimage festivals and or um, they were uh, sung by Levite priests as they were walking up 
to the Temple Mount, right? Uh, some scholars believe it was one. Some scholars believe it's the other. I probably say it's both. Um, uh, but that's what the songs, the Psalms of Ascent are. They're songs that were sung by the Jews and Levi priests as they were either descending or going into Jerusalem or walking up the steps to the Temple Mount. And actually, just yesterday, I was talking with a guy, and he studied abroad in Jerusalem when he was in college. He spent a semester in Jerusalem, and he said that those 15 steps going up to the Temple Mount are still there. And he and other people used to read each one of these Psalms of Ascent as they would walk up the Temple Mount. So it's pretty cool. It still exists. And people still do it today. Jews and Christians still read these psalms as a, as a remembrance um, of God and just as they go to the Temple Mount or as they go into Jerusalem. Now, as I mentioned before, we're in the 10th psalm. So that means that when uh, people would re sing this psalm, they were almost there, right? They were uh, 10 steps up on the Temple Mount. So they're seeing the temple at that point. Or if you're, um, you know, taking a pilgrimage into Jerusalem, you're two-thirds of the way to Jerusalem. So you're closer to the city. You know, so there's probably some excitement, you know, building. Uh, you're, you're seeing the city. But, you know, regardless of um, how or, or when these songs, these psalms of ascent are being spoken, they're really designed to teach us something about God and his redemptive plan. You know, that's what scripture is about, teaching us something about God and his redemptive plan and how we should live in our lives. Um, so we're going to take a look at Psalm 129, but, you know, I gave you a quiz today, so we're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to make it a little bit more interactive. So what I want to do is, um, uh, instead of me just reading the whole thing through, I want all of us to stand. Let's stand together. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the psalm, Psalm 129, together. All right? We're going to read it together um, out loud, right? Not in our minds. We're going to read it together. All right? All right. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord upon, be upon you. We bless you in the same, in, in the name of the Lord. All right, great. You guys did better than I did on that. All right, we can sit down now. We can sit down. You know, it's really, a, it's a beautiful psalm. You know, um, but like a lot of the Psalms, it's a simple message. It really is a simple message here. The, this Psalm, Psalm 129, is telling us that God is righteous, God saves, and throughout time, his people will be sustained. You know, let me say that one more time. Psalm 129, God is righteous, God saves, 
and throughout time, his people will be sustained. God's people will continue to exist no matter how bad things get. And a lot of times in history, things have gotten pretty bad. But there's some things here in this psalm that are hard to understand. You know, it's, it's hard to, to grasp from our current day culture and our context, right? You know, furrows. I don't know if everyone here knows what a furrow is. Grass on rooftops. What is that about? Reapers. You know, what, are, what, what is this psalm exactly saying? So what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of time to go through it, get a little bit of deeper understanding, then... I'll rehash those main points, then we'll have another quiz at the end. <laughs> Probably not, but maybe, maybe, maybe we'll have another quiz. You know, seriously though, um, it's important to remember when we read this psalm, when we read these scriptures, what's happening, how they're used, right? As I said, people are singing these as they go towards the holy temple, right? As they walk up the holy temple. So, so it's reminding them stuff about God. Or, or as people pilgrimage into Jerusalem, they're singing these. So they see the holy city of God. And this psalm is reminding them how God has provided. Um, you know, as they see the temple, as they see the city, they're reminded of God. And verse 1 is telling us that this psalm is really about God's people. You know, a lot, we, we could look at this and kind of individualize it pretty quickly. You know, individualize it and make it about me. You know, a, a lot of times people have a tendency, I have a tendency to do that, make it about me. But this psalm is really about God's people, right? It's about God's nation. For us, we can read this and say it's about God's church too, right? It's really about God's church, not specifically individuals. It does have some cross application, some cross things that we can use in our life. But the text says, let Israel now say. And Israel is the nation. When this was written, Israel was the terminology for God's people. For God's nation. So while it does have individual application, it's really a recognition of God's work through all his people throughout history. And you know, the history part, the reason why I say this history part is from that youth comment, right? From the youth comment. It says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. It's like when you're talking to somebody who has a, a hard upbringing or, you know, some stuff in their past, and they say, I've been fighting all my life. You know, that's what, that's what the psalmist is saying. You know, all throughout history, Israel has been afflicted. And, you know, um, it's about God's church. It's about Israel. And we need to look at it through that lens. You know, when the, when the psalmist says they in the text, he's not spe specifying a certain group. So again, we can see it's broader, right? It's a broader thing. It's not just one group of people. One group of people did not afflict Israel only. They were afflicted by many groups of people. From the very beginning, we can take this lineage. From the very beginning, our lineage as Christians, as people of God, is one of attack. 
is one of persecution and one of affliction, right? That's our lineage. We could go back to the garden. All the way back in the garden, Satan slyly attacked Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, Cain killed Abel. Abel was worshiping God. Cain killed Abel. Abram was scared to death. He was scared to death. Joseph was sold into slaveries by his brother. He's sold into slaveries by his brothers. And Israel, the nation of Israel, was enslaved in Egypt, right? It was, this, it was enslaved. And over and over, the nation of Israel was conquered and dispersed. It happened many times throughout Scripture. Many times. And then, when we get to the New Testament, when we look at the New Testament, our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior took on the pinnacle of affliction, right? Our Lord and Savior was killed on the cross. His disciples were demoralized, then transformed and inspired, but then killed, right? Early church history tells us that all of the disciples, except Judas the betrayer and John, were martyred. That's what church history tells us. Church history also tells us that early Christians were brutally martyred, brutally martyred, over and over again. And even today, throughout the world, Christians are persecuted. So we have a long lineage, a long lineage, where it says, since my youth, since the very beginning, we have this lineage. And that's our lineage. We have been afflicted. Yet they, yet they, yet evil has not prevailed against us. Right? Yet they, yet evil will not take us from the grace of God. When we have given our lives to him. On an individual level, Sometimes we'll hear great stories of triumph and prosperity. You know, think of like Ben Carson. Who here knows who Ben Carson is? Yeah, Ben Carson. Impoverished, growing up, becomes a Christian, becomes a world-renowned uh, surgeon. You know, when we look at Scripture, we see Abram. Going from Abram, a sojourner with no children, to being a father of a great nation, becoming Abraham and being a father of a great nation. But as individuals, we also see people like Stephen, you know, in Acts chapter 6. You know, Stephen was stoned and killed for preaching the gospel. Or we see people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who here knows who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? He stood up against the Nazis for his faith in Christ, and he was hung. He was killed. You know, we see both of these things, triumph, victory, comfort on earth, and then we see people martyred and killed. But even in the circumstances where people are martyred and killed, evil does not prevail eternally. It does not prevail forever because the righteousness is God and that righteousness is fully found in heaven. 
You know, Psalm 129 tells us, uh, specifically verse 4, that God is righteous. God is righteous. Before I get into um, verse 4, I want to just take a look at verse 3 briefly. You know, it's one of those contextual things meant for a, a people and a culture um, who are familiar with farming. You know, it says, the plowers plowed upon my back. It's saying people use God's nation, people use God's benefit for their, or God's people for their own benefit. They profited off of God's nation. They exploited them. You know, if you were a Jew, and even many of us today, we might hear this and automatically think about the slavery in Egypt, right? And you also think about other persecution that Christians have felt and experienced. And today, as I said, Christians are being persecuted all around the world for their faith. You know, justice is being done by God. God brings forth justice. And God's people are, go are, are redeemed and will be redeemed. You know, um, when it says, they made their furrows long. Who knows what a furrow is? I have to look it up too, don't worry. Um, furrows are the trenches that um, are made when people plow. So when it says, um, they, uh, the plowers plowed upon my back and they made their furrows long, it's saying that they exploited God's people and they didn't just exploit them for a little gain. They got as much of them, as much out of them as possible. You know, as much out of possible. It's a, it's a term you would think of, of slavery and taking advantage of. You know, uh, the, the they in Psalm 129 took as much as they could get from God's people. But as I said, verse 4 tells us God is good, God is justice, and He has and He will cut the cords of wickedness. And God cuts cords in many different ways. Sometimes it's supernatural. Like Moses parting the Red Sea, right? God cut the cords from Egypt through this supernatural event. And sometimes he'll do that for individuals. Yesterday as well, I heard a really awesome story. It was so inspirational. Um, one of the students at the seminary, he's from India. And his family was Hindu, right? And... Um, uh, his mom, I said, so how did your mom come to Christ? He said his mom was the first Christian in his family. And he said, you know what, one of her friends became a Christian. And um, my mom was curious why she would do that. It's horrible to do it. You could be killed, you could be disowned by your family. So uh, his mom started reading the Bible. And as she read the Bible, she began to believe in God. But she said, you know what, I don't know if this is real. So what she did is she took two little vases of coconut oil and she said, you know, God, if you're real, I'm going to put these two coconut oil, uh, vases of coconut oil on my porch. If you're real, freeze this one and have this one be liquid. And she went to bed. 
The next morning, she woke up, and the one she said, God, if you're real, freeze, was frozen. And the other one was liquid. And she came to Christ. That's a true story. God still does miracles. Right? She came to Christ. Her family was so upset, but they didn't throw her out and disown her. And eventually, the majority of people in his family came to Christ. 60% of his family, he said now. All, everyone in his media household and 60% of his general family are now Christians. And he is studying to be a pastor in Philadelphia. Isn't that cool? God does miracles. He cuts cords in miraculous ways sometimes. But God doesn't always do miracles. He doesn't always do miracles. We talked about Stephen getting stoned. God could have saved him. He didn't. And many times in Scripture, he uses regular people with their gifts and their abilities and their experience to cut cords, right? He used young David to slay Goliath, right? God can use you if he could use a teenager who's used to watching sheep in the field, he can use you, he can use me, he could use this church, he could use all of us or any of us to cut cords of wickedness. And not only can he use you, he wants to use you. God wants to use you. So let's just be sensitive to that as we go about our days recognizing where is the wickedness that God wants to cut? And how can I join my Lord and Savior in that? Because God is calling us, so we should be expectant. You know, as we get down to uh, verses 5 through 8, we basically see in these verses a prayer against evil. You know, it's a prayer. It doesn't happen all the time like this. But we hope it happens like this. That's what the psalmist is saying. Let all who hate God's people be put to shame and defeated. He's asking. He's saying, let all who hate God's people be put to shame and defeated. Let them wither before they become strong. Let nothing profitable come from them. And let people who look at evil see no blessing. Let them see no blessing. That's what the psalmist is saying. It's just like if we're experiencing a hard time or a difficult situation and we pray to God for safety and deliverance. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's just saying, you know what? Looking at our history, Lord, please let this happen. You know, the whole grass thing in verse 6, that's a little awkward, right? You know, thinking about today. But houses back then, they had a layer of compacted dirt on them to waterproof them. And so when it would rain, um, sometimes grass would sprout up or different uh, type of vegetation would sprout up on the roof. But since the roof dried out so quickly, it would wither before it got big or before it became useful in any way. And so, you know, this grass, it couldn't be reaped, it couldn't be bound, or it couldn't be used. It was pretty much good for nothing. So, the psalmist is saying, let evil be like that. If evil starts to come out, let it just be stomped out. If evil sprouts up, let it die quickly. 
and be of no impact, be of no profit. That's what the psalmist is asking. You know, there, it's a prayer against evil. And it asks God for this result. But we all know that sometimes here on earth, evil persists longer than we hope. Things are harder than we hope. And sometimes, sometimes, from my earthly eyes, it looks like evil wins, right? Sometimes it even looks like evil wins. You hear about human trafficking and abuse and all these things, right? Sometimes it looks like evil wins. But in Psalm 29, we see that God is righteous, God saves, and throughout time, His people will be sustained. That was my rehash of the main points. And so earlier, I left the door open for a quiz at the end. So I'm wrapping up right now. But I'm not going to give you a quiz. <laughs> but I do have some questions. I do have some questions that I just kind of want to wrap up with. And the main question is, when we look at Psalm 129, when we look at Scripture, I have a, um, somebody at the seminary, he says, uh, W-G-A-R. And he says, uh, who gives a rip? Right? Who gives a rip? When we look at Psalm 129, I say, why does it matter in our lives? Right? We're going to leave here today. Most of us will go home. Most of us will go to work tomorrow and see the same stuff we see every day day in and day out, or have new challenges and difficulties. So, who gives a rip about Psalm 129? Why does it matter in our life? First, I want to just say, it matters because we need to be saved. Psalm 129 tells us God is good, God saves, and His people will be sustained. So it tells us we need to be saved because we're so far from God. We are so deep in our own mess that we need God to save us. It tells us that it's God who cuts the cord of wickedness. It's not us. It's not us. If we're doing stuff and it even looks like it's good to us, but we're doing it on our own without God, we're failing. We're failing. We can't do God's work without Him. He cuts the cord, point blank. And if we believe that, if we believe what Psalm 129 tells us, and we believe Scripture, if we believe that God saves us and we need saving, what would our prayer life look like? What would our individual prayer life look like? When we woke up every morning, what would our morning routine look like if we believed we needed God to save us? What would we be thinking about on our commute to work? Or what would we be thinking about when we have family problems or work issues or experience anything? Would we try to do these things in our own strength, in our own wisdom, would we figure these things out? And I think I could figure out a lot of stuff. Or would we go to God for His wisdom? 
and seek His righteousness. If we really believe that God sustains His people for all eternity, that God wins, God prevails, how would our lives be different? Would we get angry about little things? Frustrated about this person said that at work? Or my kid did something stupid? Would we get as angry about these things? If we really had the perspective of God persisting and winning for eternity. You know, if we remember our lineage of persecution, of affliction, if we remember these things that have happened throughout church history, would we spend so much of our money on luxury and comfort? Or if we believe that God, God is actively cutting the cord to wickedness, cutting the cord to evil like he did for this lady in India, like he does for so many, if we believed he was doing this, would we spend so much of our time on entertainment? If we believe what Psalm 129 is telling us about our Lord and Savior, then we should join him in this work. Why does Psalm 129 matter? It's because it tells us what our God is like, what our future is when we give our lives to him, and what God cares about. He cares about cutting cords of wickedness. That's why Jesus died on the cross, and that's why we can be transformed because of God.